in this place of worship, and yet I know it's going to get better. For we're about to continue to, to hear God speak to us and hear Him speak to us from His Word, and just so thankful for that. So if you have your Bibles, if you can open with me, please, to Colossians chapter 2. So Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to be today in the Word, and welcome to week 7 of a series that has us walking through this book or this letter and as it turns out, this is probably the most amazing prison letter ever written. Um, I mean, there's probably been a lot of good prison letters written, but none as good as this. For Paul in prison is writing to the church at Colossus, just lifting high Jesus, saying nothing can get in the way of you seeing him. So Paul throughout this letter is lifting up the supremacy of Christ. He's the supreme one and the sufficiency of Christ. He's enough. He will forever be enough for us. And I pray that our time together in this book has already been beneficial. And I, I am praying that the remaining time together will, will continue to bear eternal fruit. And I want to begin our time together today in the Word by placing a question before us. And it's a question that has an obvious answer. It's a very um, deep question, but an obvious answer. And that question is this, have you ever in your life, have you ever felt spiritually dry? Have you ever felt like something was missing in your spiritual life? And I say it's an obvious question because I think most of us in this room, if we're going to be honest, and church is always a good place to be honest, um, we, would, we would say, yes, I've been there. There's been times in my life I've been spiritually dry. I've felt like something was missing. And just think about what's represented all across this room Many of us in this room have been um, Christians since we were little. We're well-versed in facts and stories of the Bible. We know about the flannel boards way back when and all of those stories. But many people, even though they know those things, they're no longer captivated by Christ. Others are bored with Jesus. For some reason, they've allowed themselves or let themselves get get bored there's no passion for him in in their lives they go through the motions but they have no hunger they have no thirst uh, for him they don't really feel anything when they worship I don't, I don't know how you could sing a song like oh praise the name of the lord our god and not have that praise of him just rising up in you but some nothing there there's there's nothing what whatsoever and the question becomes, why have many in the church gotten bored with Jesus? Why do many feel cold towards the gospel, and how do we fix it? Do we fix it by getting a cooler pastor and making things cooler here? And granted, I'm, let me just throw that out there. There's no such thing as a cooler pastor. I'm just throwing that out there, just, just so you know. But how do, how do we fix it? And I think this, almost all of our spiritual problems come from a, a lack of sight, and a lack of roots. Meaning because we know with our minds um, something that we've never felt with our hearts. We've never allowed truths to be deeply rooted in us. And let me just say this this morning. What we don't need, we don't need new facts about Jesus. In, in fact, I love what John does in his gospel. John says, listen, Jesus did way more than this. But the things I'm writing to you, I'm writing that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So what, so what John is even saying, you don't need more. I'm giving you enough that you can believe in Jesus. So we don't need new facts concerning Jesus. 
What we need simply is to have our eyes of our hearts enlightened to the truths that we already know and then let those truths um, be planted and rooted deeply into our hearts through Jesus. As one Christian author put it, just listen to this, the death of a soul is never quick. It is always a slow dying, a succession of little deaths that continues until we wake up one day on the edge of God's voice beyond the adventure of God's claim on our lives. People can mimic aliveness even though they are lost, confused, thirsty, soul-weary, bone-tired, and nearly dead. And I think if we're going to be honest, we, we've probably all been there. We go through the motions of Christianity. We do the things that we know we're supposed to do. We come to church because we know we're supposed to do it. But inside, we're dying a slow death. And one day we wake up and we're beyond hearing the voice of God. Why? Because we've just let our and hardened our conscience and hardened our hearts one decision after another decision after another. And then God no longer becomes who he once was to us. The roots that we used to go deep into Christ have now shriveled and, and withered away. And they're not getting from Christ what they should be getting from Him. So it's with that this morning that we're going to, to dive deep in the Word. And we're going to hear Paul declare the past, the present, and the future identity of the church at Colossus, which is that they were a people who were deeply rooted in Christ and needed to be deeply rooted in Him. And we're going to see today that we must be that people. We must be that people that are rooted in Him. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's Word. We're going to read Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15 together. And when you get there, let me hear you say. Amen. And beginning at verse 6, therefore. Let me just stop there. Anytime you see the word therefore in Scripture, we're always taught to say, what is therefore, therefore. So um, the, the point is it means something else. Something else is going on. Because of all of this, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him. So just think about this. When we read this, listen to those words, in Him. This picture of rooting. And established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, Excuse me, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word and we long to be a people who are deeply rooted in you. Lord, we acknowledge, we recognize that anyone in this room today who is not rooted in you is dead and is without life. 
And the reality, Father, is we need your life. And the only way to have your life is to be rooted in you. You give us all the nutrients. You give us the minerals. You give us everything we need for life. God, speak to us today through your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So here's what we know. Here's what I think I know. I think I know that the world that we live in can be pretty brutal at times. Anybody else? Is that a true statement for most of us? The world that we live in can be a pretty brutal place. People disappoint us, and then we disappoint ourselves because we disappoint others. The flesh gets the upper hand in our lives. Satan is relentless in his assault over us, whether he's accusing us, tempting us, or taunting us. Circumstances oftentimes get out of hand or out of control, and our dreams sometimes just shatter right in front of us. Society as a whole seems to be unraveling right before our eyes. And then worst of all, sometimes we are led or tempted to believe or wonder whether our lives are going anywhere or whether anything good is being produced in and through our lives. And this is where we find amazing comfort in the words that Paul chooses in this moment. For we are not hopeless victims who are just floating out of control in an out-of-control world. That's not where Paul leads us. In fact, in Colossians 1.16, Jesus has created us. In Colossians 1.17, Jesus is holding us together. And then here in chapter 2, we have the ability to be rooted in Him. That can be our identity. That can be our security. That can be our strength. That can be our hope that we are rooted in to and in Christ. So with that word rooted placed before us this morning, I want us to dig down deep and I want us to focus on three truths concerning the roots that we have in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And I pray that God will just take us in this place deeper in Him. So the first is this, we are rooted in and through the receiving of Christ. So first truth, we are rooted in and through the receiving of Christ. We look at verse 6 and it says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. So receiving Jesus means that when Jesus offers himself to you, you welcome him into your life. Get this, for who he is. This is the only time in all of Paul's letters that Paul uses the, the specific name, Christ Jesus the Lord. Think about this. We live in a day and age where all we ever hear when it comes to Jesus is, He is Savior. He's Savior. He's Savior. He saved us from our sins. He forgives us. That's all we ever hear. But the emphasis of the Bible is, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. Many people want Jesus the, the Lamb. What they don't want is Jesus the Lion. Lambs can be led around. Lambs, we, we view it as stupid and helpless. And maybe sometimes that's what we think. Jesus is that and we just lead him around and he does for us what we need him to do for us. But listen, not only is Jesus the Lamb, meaning he laid his life down for us, he is also the Lion. He's Lord. When you think about the the book of Acts. So think about the picture in the book of Acts. It's the first century church. It might surprise you that the apostles all throughout the book of Acts preached the lordship of Christ. 
The word Savior only occurs two times in the book of Acts. So Jesus as Savior only occurs two times in the book of Acts, whereas the word Lord occurs 92 times in the book of Acts. It's like they're trying to tell us something. He's not just Savior, He is Lord. So Savior means saves. Um, Lord means He rules. Many want Jesus as their Savior. They just do not want Him as their Lord. Which begs the question, did you receive Christ just as your Savior or did you receive Him for who He is? He is Savior and He is Lord. Did we receive Him in that way? I love John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. It's so important because John tells us how we may become children of God. Listen to what he says. It's right there on the screen. John says, He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him, meaning they did not receive him for who he was. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now I want to fix in your minds right now a statement and a question. And that statement and question is this. According to this, not everyone is a child of God. Am I? Ask yourself that. Not everyone is a child of God. Am I? What difference does that make in us? In John chapter 8, verses 34 through 36, Jesus said these words. Truly I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not continue in the house forever. The son continues forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. In other words, if you will not be children, you will be slaves. And slaves do not remain in the house forever, but children do. So what's at stake in becoming a child of God is eternal life. So think with me again. Not everyone is a child of God, am I? Which leads us to another question. Not everyone will have eternal life, will I? Will we receive eternal life? Receiving Jesus means taking Jesus into your life for who He is. Meaning, if He comes to us as Savior, we welcome His salvation. If He comes to us as leader, we welcome His leadership. If He comes to us as provider, we welcome His provision. If He comes to us as counselor, we welcome His counsel. If He comes to us as protector, we welcome His protection. If He comes to us as authority, we welcome His authority. And if He comes to us as king, we welcome His rule. We receive Him for who He is. And let me just say this, he is much more than we make him out to be. It is sad that we live in a society where we have brought Jesus down to our level instead of continuing to lift Jesus high for who he is. Let me just say this, if the Jesus that you believe in never differs any from your thoughts and your ideas, then you aren't believing in the Jesus of the Bible. You have, you have created your own Jesus who likes everything you do. And Jesus always, everything you do, Jesus goes, I approve that message. I tell you, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Amen. There are so many times in my life where Jesus goes, oh, he did it again, <laughs> but I love that fool. I, I love him. He's foolish and he's stupid, but I love him. And the, the picture is we have to receive Jesus. Have you ever done that? Have you ever responded to Jesus for who he has revealed himself to be? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? 
we must be rooted in and through the receiving of Christ, receiving him for who he is. And then secondly, we are rooted in and through obedience to Christ. So if that was tough, this is going to be a little tougher because now we're going after, if he's Lord, then guess what? We obey him. If he's Lord, we obey him. So verses 6 and 7 says this, Walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I want you to think real quick with me back to the first century church of which, which the Christians of Coloss would be included. The first century church, their enemies were always giving them serious problems. They crucified them, they hung them, they um, speared them, burned them, fed them to lions. They sometimes stole their property, even stealing their children and selling their children into slavery. This is the world of first century Christianity. The world ridiculed them and were never indifferent towards them. I think of Acts 17. In, in Acts 17, the world once shouted with tears of rage in their eyes of Christians these words, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And there's some amazing thoughts here. First of all, the world always thinks itself to be right side up when in reality the world itself is upside down. The world that we live in is upside down. And guess what? Because the world is upside down, guess what's falling out? Morality and truth and goodness. All of the, Because the world is upside down, those things are just falling right out. The world is not right side up. The world needs to be right side up. But the world is at this moment upside down. And then second of all, the enemies of Jesus or his followers might have thought them to be demented, demonic, even dangerous. But they never thought, them, never thought them to be insignificant. Let me say it again. The believers to the enemies, they might have been demonic, they might have been um, demented or even dangerous, but they were never insignificant. What about today? Are we turning the world right side up today with our obedience to Christ? Are we even nudging the world at all? Does the world even pay attention to us? A few years ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury said this, wherever the Apostle Paul went in his day, he touched off either a revival or a riot. Wherever I go today, they just serve me tea. Just think about that. Wherever the Apostle Paul went, one of two things was happening, either a riot or revival. And where we go, we get tea and coffee. I mean, do you see this picture? Do you understand this reality? There was something different about the first century Christians and their obedience to Christ that made an amazing difference in the world that they lived. Getting back to verses 6 and 7, not only were they walking in Christ, they were following the steps of Christ, they were established in their faith. They were growing in their faith. Now let me ask you a question. Let's do a little survey real quick. How many of you in here would raise your hand and, go and say this morning, I would love to see my faith in God and Christ increased? So most of us here, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but let's say I follow that question up by saying this. How many of you are spending adequate time in the word of God? And probably less hands would go up. Yet, think about this. The Word of God says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. 
if you want your faith to be increased, you don't keep your Bible closed. The only thing that increases when you keep your Bible closed is maybe your faith in yourself. But that's a faulty faith. We have to open our word, and as we open or the word, and as we open the word, our faith will increase and will grow. And then according to verses 7, they abounded in thanksgiving. They were thankful. They were a thankful people. I think one of the reasons that the, the church isn't heard as much, and I, I'm going to kind of be nitpicky here a little bit, but let, let me, you don't have a choice. I'm going to tell you anyway. I was going to say, allow me, but I'm going to do it anyway. I think sometimes if we're not careful, we only thank God when we get our way. Like if we know we have this diagnosis against us and then if all of a sudden it turns out right, oh, praise God, it wasn't this, God healed this. But what if the diagnosis didn't change? What if it got worse? We're silent. Oh, that God would root in us a passion where we could say the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He is to be praised. He's to be praised. I don't get what I want. He's to be praised. Doesn't work out the way I want it to. He is to be praised. We thank him for who he is. So all of these acts, walking in him, growing in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving, all of these are acts of obedience that pour forth from a life that has been, if you look at verse 12, a life that has been buried with him in baptism um, and raised in him through faith in the powerful working of God. So this picture is all of this is true of someone who has been buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. It's a picture of our new birth. But let me just say this. We can't, in, in Scripture, you can never read the picture of baptism without thinking about the command of Christ over us, which is to be baptized. So anytime we see that picture of baptism, I think there is a spiritual baptism that takes place in the new birth, but there's also a command for us to be baptized. Here's what I know. The First Baptist Church of Ocean Way may be known for a lot of things, good or, or bad, things maybe I don't want to even know that we're known for. But I think one of the things that we should be known for is the critical elements of our theology, which is baptism. I mean, think about this. Baptist means that we make a big deal about baptism. It's a sad reality. It is an absolutely sad reality or sad statements that many Baptist churches care more about their traditions than they do about people getting baptized. It's a sad state of affairs where we hold to our traditions more tightly than we care about souls being saved and baptized. You know why? Because we stop caring about the things of God and we start caring about the things of ourselves when instead God needs to change our hearts so we begin to care about His things, which are people. We need to care about people, people being saved, people being obedient to the gospel. We need to make a big deal, a bigger deal about baptism. But let me just tell you, when we do, when we make a big deal about baptism, people are going to be, begin to question, saying, what's the big deal about baptism? And let me just give you four things real quick, four truths that shape the way we view baptism. And I, I'm praying one of two things is going to happen. If you're here and you've never been baptized, and this maybe will be the encouraging word you need to hear to be baptized. But if you're here right now and you've been baptized and you go, okay, well, the next four points are not for me, let me just remind you, the call of Christ over our lives is to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, meaning 
that our call by Christ is to be a part of leading other people to be baptized. If we're not doing that, we're not doing what Christ has called us to do. Not being a part of that. So four things. First of all, baptism publicly declares our repentance. It publicly declares our repentance. There are so many people in the world who've been baptized, but they've never repented. Somebody has led them to believe that they could come to Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. That they could come to Jesus like he was a salad bar. And they'd say, I I want the lettuce, I want the ranch dressing, I want a few raisins, I want some cucumbers, I don't want onions, I don't want this, I don't want that. And that's how people come to Christ. They're convinced. But all throughout Scripture, to be baptized was an open sign of repentance. Baptism is a symbol that we have walked out of the wilderness of our sin into a new life of faith and obedience. Let me just say this very clearly. If there was not a change in your life after your conversion and you were baptized, all you did was get wet in front of people. That's all you did. Baptism declares repentance. Second of all, baptism is by Immersion. It's by immersion. There's two reasons that we submerge people. First of all, this is how they did it in the Bible. We're introduced early on in the, in the New Testament to a guy named John the Baptizer. Another word for him is John the Dunker. Everywhere he went, he was just dunking people under the water. It's what he did. And the word, the Greek word for baptism literally means plunge, soak, or dunk, or, or, or dip. But secondly, we We submerge people because of what it symbolizes. Here's what I know. I'm not making light of death at all. But when you bury people, you don't go to the gravesite and just take a little bit of dirt and sprinkle it on the casket and then just walk away. You don't do that. You bury them into the the earth and you put dirt over them. In the same way, baptism is a symbol of us being buried with Jesus in his death and being raised that we might walk in newness of life. By immersion. And third, baptism is not a condition of, but an evidence of salvation. Baptism doesn't save us, but it shows people that we have been saved. Many people think that scripture somehow shows that if you haven't been baptized and you're not saved. I I can show you one story that disproves that. Jesus on the cross with the thief. Today you will be with me in paradise. If baptism was necessary for salvation, Jesus would have said, quick, somebody get a bucket and some water. we got to get this guy baptized. we got to make it happen now. But that's not what happened. Why? Because baptism doesn't save us. It's a symbol that we have been saved. Wearing this ring does not marry me. But it shows that there was a day that I entered into a covenant with God and with with my wife before God. And now, granted, if I take this ring off, even though I can't because I've gained some weight since I first put this on, so this thing's not coming off. But if I could, it wouldn't make me any less married. But the the point is I wear this um, proudly as a sign of those wedding vows. I rejoice in that. And then fourth, baptism is incredibly important. It's incredibly important. Martin Luther, someone who we would absolutely agree with um, in his thoughts that baptism was very important, but we would also respectfully disagree with him about who should be baptized and when they should be baptized. But Martin Luther, um, we're coming up on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, but he said that the devil came to him every night to dispute with him 
And Luther said he learned two things that would chase the devil away. And I'm going to give you both of these. I'm going to go ahead and ask for your forgiveness now. I'm going to tell you both of them. But the first thing that he would do um, to chase the devil away is he would say this, Satan, I am a baptized believer. I have left your wilderness. You have no more jurisdiction over me. I am now obedient to my Savior. He would say that every night when Satan would come. The other way, and I'm not even quite sure how to say this, is that he would pass gas. Um, I, I, I kid you not. I wish I was kidding. He believed that because the devil was proud and hated mockery, that passing gas was a way of making Satan flee. Again, I wish I was kidding with you, but I, I'm not. But here's the point. Here's the point. Some of you, that's all you're going to hear, and Lord, forgive me for that. But the point is, we need power to resist Satan, and baptism is way more pleasant than for those around us, um, the first way than the second way. So baptism is way more pleasant than choosing the other alternative to run Satan away. But even, even greater than that, and I know some of you are thinking, how can it possibly get any better than our pastor talking about passing gas from the pulpit? But even greater than, than that, much greater than that, is the roots of Christ that enable us to obey him. Amen. That we are able to obey him, not just in baptism, but every part of our lives. Rooted in and through obedience to Christ, which leads us to the last truth, which is this. We are rooted in and through the victory gained by Christ. I'm trying to move on from the last point, so move on with me. So the victory gained by Christ. Look at verse 13 with me and following. Verses 13 through 15 says, And you who were dead, Dornell dead, can't be any deader than you were dead, dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by, get this, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We were spiritually dead, but by him, through him, by his grace, we have been made spiritually alive. And I want to touch on several things real quick. The weight of this is that we have been made alive in Christ. And I want you to just remember with me, just follow with me back to where mankind is first brought into this story of redemption. God makes Adam and Eve in the garden, and God says, you can eat every fruit in the garden except for the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. If the day on which you eat that, you will surely die. You're going to die. So the price that God put for treason from the beginning was death. You commit treason against God, you die. And that's a just punishment. That's a right punishment. In fact, that's how some governments, even today, in our enlightened society, that's how they operate. You commit treason against the government, you die. It's deserving punishment. It is deserving of death. So Adam and Eve eat the fruit, yet God does not kill them. It's the first act of mercy occurring 
instantaneously with sin entering the world. Just follow with me here. Adam and Eve did not die physically that day. They, now, they did die spiritually that day. There was spiritual separation, but they did not die physically that day. Yet the curse of death remains on us. So the penalty for our sin, get this, the penalty for our sin against God is not just a bad credit report. The penalty for our sin against God is not repossession of property. The repentance or the, the penalty of our sin is not imprisonment. It is death. Physical and spiritual death. Not just eternal death one day, going to die one day, but instantaneous death. So if you're here this morning and you're breathing, even if you hate God and don't like God in this moment, your breath has been given to you through an act of God's incredible mercy and grace. You didn't bring that breath to yourself. God is giving that to you even though we have committed treason against him. He is allowing you to breathe. He's allowing me to breathe. Even though every one of us in this room are guilty of trying to overthrow him, guilty of treading down his glory in the world he created, guilty of using his own creation, us, against him. We're all guilty of that. And yet we're still here. We're still breathing. But let me just say this. That is not the fullness of the good news. So the fullness of the good news is not we sin against God and we get to stay alive. That's not the fullness of the good news for any of us. The glorious good news of the gospel is that we are deserving of death, physical and spiritual death. And instead we have been given life and we have been given the forgiveness of our trespasses by which, according to the word of God, God has canceled the record of the debt that stood against us. Meaning God has wiped the slate clean. Just think about this. God didn't simply just take our big record of sin and just rip it up and throw it away. As if nothing happened. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's exactly what happened. But let me just tell you what I'm saying here. The infinitely righteous God cannot pretend that sin didn't happen. He cannot just turn a blind eye to our sin. The infinitely holy God must punish sin. Sin must be punished. So instead of punishing us, he took our guilt and get this, he nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. The, eternal, the eternally good news for you and I is that Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. Yesterday I was outside um, pressure washing our, our house and about three minutes in, I was joined by a little five-year-old. Um, you can just imagine where this went. So I would get one section done, and I would try to move on to do something else, and I would come back, and the section I just did was just filled with mud because he would get a hold of the handle of something, and there would be mud all over where I, I just did. And Misty would come out just for a second and go, Y'all good? Okay. And you know, she would walk back in. I was like, Of course we're not good. I'm out here with a five-year-old. How do you think it's going? But think about this. This is a picture of how you and I do with our lives. We work so hard in trying to clean ourselves up. We work so hard trying to make sure we're cleaned up. And we think we've got it and we turn around and it's a mess. Why? Because we 
cannot clean ourselves up. We cannot pay the penalty for our sins. In fact, in eternity, in eternity in hell will not pay the penalty of sins against the holy God. A forever will not pay. Thank God Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He took our sin and he nailed it to his cross. Maybe you've never seen yourself like this, but you and I were buried under a mountain of spiritual bankruptcy. And we went to the bank and we said, please give me what's due. Give me what's mine. And the, the banker, the teller said, you've got nothing. You've got nothing but debt. And then Jesus said, through your faith in me, try my account. Give him my account. And we go up. And we say, here it is. And they say, through this, you get everything. You get it all. It's a picture of what has been done for us. Jesus paid it all. And the third stanza of one of my favorite hymns, the famous hymn, It Is Well, Horatio Spafford writes these words. And I, I, I love them so much, I'm going to put them on the screen. He says this, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, he's thinking... My sin, and then he's saying, this is happy, this is good news. My sin, not in part, not a small part, but all of it, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. My sin, not in part, but all of it, was nailed to the cross, and I don't have to bear it anymore. And what's the right response to that? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. At the cross, our debt was paid. And at the cross, the enemy of our souls was disarmed and disrobed. I wish I had time to go into verse 15. We'll hit that a little bit more tonight. But let me just leave you um, with a few questions um, this morning. Number one, are you in this moment rooted in Christ? Is your life rooted in Christ? Have you ever trusted Jesus as your Savior and your Lord? Have you ever received him for who he is? That's where your rooting begins. Have you ever been rooted in that, in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Oh, today would be the day of salvation. Maybe you're here today and you're a believer, and you would be honest enough to, to have to say, man, there was a time where I was rooted deeply in Christ, but those roots have withered. They're not what they used to be. I don't have the joy that I used to have. I don't have that. We've allowed those roots to just come up. And instead today, in a fresh and a new way, we need to drive them deep. We need to drive them deep in Him and all that He gives to us, the life and the hope of all that we have in and through Him. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand with me this morning. We're going to call the musicians up, and we're going to enter into a time of invitation and, and consecration. But let's pray. Father, we rejoice in you, rejoice in your word, God. We ask that you would finish this time today in a way that only you can, that you would be with any in this room today that has never been rooted in you through a relationship with Jesus Christ, coming to him responding to him as Savior and Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray for those that 
have been saved, but God have never walked forward in baptism and followed in baptism, that you would help any in here, God, to get that right. I pray for others, God, who are watching their spiritual lives, God, just diminish. They're not what they were because they weren't rooted the way they once were. Help them today, God, by your grace, to root themselves deeply into you. God, finish this time together today in a way that will bring glory and honor to yourself. In Jesus' name.